Welcome to Living Waters Podcast. Whether you're a lifelong believer, someone seeking spiritual nourishment, or simply curious about the teachings of Christ, this podcast is for you. Thank you for listening and being part of our family. Let's read Luke chapter 17. You can follow in your own Bible. You can follow along on the screen. Um, you can doze off and have a nap. That's, um, I can't control that anyway. Luke chapter 17. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing and looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes, he as in, um, suppose one of you, sorry, has a servant plowing, will he as in when the, the master comes back, say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat. Won't he, the master, rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will, know, when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there it is, or here it is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man, in His day, will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from, the end, uh, from one end to the other. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the, in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day... No one who is in, on the housetop should, with possessions inside rather, should go down to get them. 
Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked. And he replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that we once again have this tremendous privilege to to dive into your life-giving word. We count ourselves so blessed to live at a time where we have access not just to, to the whole Bible, but to the very words you spoke on earth. And this morning, as your followers and, and as disciples of the Most High, Lord, I pray that these words would instruct us, encourage us, shape us, change us, so that we might bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is quite a packed chapter once again with a lot happening. And I'm excited to get into it. And the first section we're going to deal with is from verse 1 to 19. And here, Jesus once again is teaching lessons in discipleship. The big idea, discipleship cannot be undertaken casually. The service of God demands all that we can bring to it. And this is made very, very clear. I'm always a big fan of of the message translation of the story of the house built on stone and house built on sand. And I'm not suggesting that the message translation is the best translation to read, not by a long shot. But in it, he uses this incredible imagery where he says that the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message that he taught, is not a home improvement. It is the foundation we build our lives upon. Discipleship is not a a fresh coat of paint and and clean tiles for our already built worldviews, structures, practices, understanding. Discipleship in Jesus Christ is the very foundation we should rebuild our lives upon. And this is such an important thing because this is exactly what Jesus is teaching again and again and again. He teaches that this discipleship is something that should become the very core of our existence. The foundation of our worldview, how we see things, the glasses through which we see the world. This is so very important. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We must realize that in the story. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem now. These are the teachings he's giving, knowing full well the cross is waiting for him. And in just two short chapters, he's going to make his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That's what's coming. In two weeks' time, we're going to get there. And what he's doing now is he's teaching extensively in this route to Jerusalem section. He's teaching extensively on discipleship. And what does it look like to be followers of Jesus Christ? And in this first section, Jesus again teaches of the nature and demands of following. And then he obviously uses the story of the Samaritan as an example of what following Jesus actually looks like. Now, it's often preached as a story of of gratitude, which it 100% is, but it's not only that. We see that Jesus saves someone that's a Samaritan of all people. And it's only Samaritan, the Samaritan that put the Jews to shame in their response to salvation. Incredible story. I want to quickly look at, at three of the four separate units of teaching in just the first ten verses. 
Four separate units of teaching, incredibly rich. I want to look at just three of them because that's really, we, that's all we have time for today. And first is verses one and two. And this is going to be probably the longest section of today's whole sermon, by the way. And that is a cause to stumble. In this section, Jesus starts and he says to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. This will come. Right. Stumbling blocks will come. Stumbling blocks to my faith, to your faith will come. Those stumbling blocks might be other teaching or it might be issues we face in our lives. Things that we struggle with, things that we have to deal with. But stumbling blocks will come. But then Jesus says something very, very significant. And he says, but woe to anyone through whom they come. Now, let's just focus on this. This is very important because he's addressing the disciples. He's addressing them and saying, listen, be careful not to become stumbling blocks to others that are in faith. And then obviously he says it's better for them to be thrown into the deepest part of the sea with a rock around their necks. It's better for them to do that than for what actually is awaiting them. Because what's awaiting those who cause others to stumble? Man, it is no laughing matter. Anyway, so this is a big thing. And, and this is a very important teaching because clearly Jesus is saying that we should be instruments of, of not breaking each other down, but rather building each other up. This is what our call is, is we should be the ones that, that help one another in this discipleship journey and following Jesus. Not the ones who put obstacles in, in the place for others. That's not what we should be busy with. That's not what we should be doing. We shouldn't make it tough for people to follow Jesus. We should help them in this difficult call to follow Jesus. But that does lead us to asking such an important question is what, what sort of stumbling blocks did Jesus have in mind? What are the stumbling blocks that, that he had in mind when he was teaching his disciples on this important trait of discipleship? What did he have in mind? What are the things we can put in place that might cause others to stumble on that jersey? Because when we read this, we might be tempted to think, oh, I was offended by something Hines said that one time. Clearly, Jesus is going to tie a millstone around his neck and throw him into the ocean. Or, or every time someone angers me, you know, that's them causing me to stumble. Or, or it's their fault that I did this. Or it's their fault that I got into this or, or got addicted to that or, or cheated on my wife on that. It's their fault. It's their fault. He's not talking about the victims here. Jesus is talking to us as his disciples and saying, hey, you don't cause others to stumble. We're back on that the one thinking. We addressed it a few weeks back. We all think we're the one. We all want to be the center of attention. No, no, no. Jesus is warning me and you not to cause others to stumble. Don't be a victim here. Be careful of what Jesus is actually teaching. Now, I want to quickly suggest just one or two applications. To what do we do with this? Because this is a big thing, and, and I needed some, something to root this in. And the first thing I want to mention is that the root has a destination. So anything that might stumble or trip people up on the destination, which is God, by the way. This is where we're going towards, to His kingdom, to His glory. Anything that might trip people up there is what He is talking about. So this, this is a very big thing because, I mean, it could obviously be us mis misrepresenting Jesus and causing others to stumble. Obviously, that would be a stumbling block. When we misrepresent Jesus and, and we, we don't look like we should. 
When people have no idea you're a Christian in the world, and I say that lovingly, but we shouldn't look like the world. So if we blend in too much, what we're doing is we're making people stumble on their way to God because we're not actually guiding them on that route. Gandhi famously said, and we know he said this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now listen, I say this. Now Gandhi was by no means uh, an expert on Christology, all right? So we're not taking Gandhi as, as a theological expert, all right? So we reject his views on Scripture for the most part because he's not a scholar of, of the Scriptures, all right? So I'm not saying that Gandhi's perspectives are perfect, but what I am saying is Gandhi saw something in the followers of Christ that caused him to stumble because they misrepresented Jesus. And that's a tough thing, man. That's a tough reality because this is what so often happens. Now listen, I'm not saying everyone that goes, yeah, but you Christians are judgmental, you know, you don't accept everyone. We love and accept everyone, but man, we don't accept all lifestyles and choices. We don't. And we shouldn't. This, this message I'm preaching is not saying, hey, you know, don't call out sin. Not a chance. I'm saying when you do, make sure that it is so wrapped in love, people are punched with love and convicted of sin, not punched with the sin and convicted of a little bit of love. We shouldn't look like the world, but we should be careful of hypocrisy. We should be careful of hypocrisy because one thing that the world has gotten very good at is spotting when people aren't real. Is spotting when people speak out of both sides of their mouth, as they would say. And we know it when people do that. We know it. We see it. And we don't trust such people. And as Christians, we shouldn't do that. People should know us not first and foremost as Hein. I should first be known as a son of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That should be the first thing that's visible in my life. And then they might know me as Hein. If they want to, I'm, I'm fine if they don't. But I want to represent Jesus everywhere I go. But tripping up disciples in their journey in God, uh, to God is not just what we do, but it's also what we do not do. It's also what we do not do. Because sometimes our, our silence can cause big stumbling blocks for people. When we don't speak about injustice being caused in our workplaces. When we rather shy away from confrontation, just not because we don't want to ruffle any feathers. Sometimes, listen, there, there, there's something we need to understand. Sin is not just a point of commission, it's also a point of omission. All right. So sin is sometimes things we do, but often things we don't do is also sin. Because there are things we are called to do. And when a brother is sinning, we should be quick to help them along the right path. See, I, I want to give us an image. I don't have it. I've shown it before because I think it's brilliant. But, but we should think of, of this discipleship journey kind of like a balance beam. All right. 
We should think of it as a balance beam. Now, our job in this balance beam is not just by ourselves to walk across it, but to help other people walk across this beam themselves. And that means we're there when they're falling and they need someone to press on. Can't just say, oh, you fell. No, you should have been there. Omission. And when we're walking alongside them, we should be stability for them so that they can rest their hands on their shoulders if they lose their balance. This is what Jesus is saying. Hey, don't put issues in place. The second thing, that was just the first thing, by the way, the destination of the journey. The second part of it is quarreling. Quarreling. Now, I'm addressing this is because we see it so often in church. Now, I want to just quickly say, over the centuries, churches have interpreted the Bible in many different ways. All right? And different topics have different ways of interpretation. I honor that. And there are examples where differences in interpretation is reasonable. There are reasonable differences in interpretation. And if you want me to give an example, I will. All right. So one of those reasonable differences in interpretation is the age of the earth. Ah, don't get offended. Everyone relax. But 6,000 years, fine. 6 billion years, fine. Fine. I, I will even allow, oh my goodness, are you guys ready? In a charismatic church, I'm going to say something. I will even allow differences in interpretation when it comes to things like praying in tongues. I will allow for differences in interpretation. Do it. Don't do it. Fine. But when we look at, at these kind of differences in, ter, in, in interpretation, there are some things that are open-handed. We can disagree, love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I promise you, we're sitting in the same church, but in this church there are many things we disagree about when it comes to biblical interpretation. That's just the reality. And as long as it's the open-handed things, fine, bless you. If you can support it with Scripture, that's okay. But there are some closed-handed issues that you and I cannot disagree with. So if we come back to the example of the age of the earth, because I think it's a good example, if you believe it's 6,000 years or 6 billion years, I don't care at all, as long as you believe that God is the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator who started everything, created everything, and by his power, we have our being. If you believe that, believe age what you want. Age open-handed, we can disagree in interpretation, Creator, closed-handed. Closed-handed. We believe God is the uncaused first cause. We believe Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, born on earth in flesh, died on a cross, rose again on the third day, and went up to heaven. Those are some closed-handed issues in church. Now, why I'm saying all this is, unfortunately, we don't do so well always as the church, not you, us all, as the church, modern day church, in majoring on the majors. We like quarreling about the minors. And I believe we're placing stumbling blocks in people's paths. I do. And if you want some more of my views on that, you'll be shocked to, to hear the things that I believe we shouldn't even be talking about because it's not a major because our churches, it breaks my heart every time churches speak against each other. When people will walk into another church and say, oh, but this place smells like dead religion. Don't you beat Jesus' bride with a stick. Don't you do that. 
He loves that church just as much as he loves this one. Living Waters or Church Unlimited Sabi is not the bride of Christ. We are part of the bride of Christ. And the Enge church, the AFM church, the Forum de Kerk, whatever the church might be, is just as much part of the bride. Be careful of beating Jesus' bride with a stick, guys. Because let me tell you, if you beat my bride with a stick, I'm going to rip your head off. I mean, I will lovingly correct you and, and guide you into all truth. And I didn't even die for her. How much more will Jesus, who laid down his life for his bride, protect her? Now I want to quickly read here because this is important. Paul writes about this because this is not a new thing. And I want to read from Romans 14. I tried to put it on the slides. It didn't want to work, so I'm sorry. You'll just have to listen. I want to read a couple of verses there. Um, it starts Romans 14, verse 1. And here we, we, go, we gauge in their specific issue was there were some Jews getting saved, and they were in Rome, and they believed that, that everyone should be following the Jewish laws. And then there were Gentiles who were free and understood that, hey, you could eat bacon if you wanted to. And there were some issues with this. Praise Jesus for bacon. But anyway, Romans 14, verses from verse 1, Paul writes and he says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. I'm going to read that again. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. He goes on to say, One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Do you hear that, vegetarians? You need faith. I'm joking. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. The one who understands their freedom must not treat with contempt the one who does not. They mustn't speak against the church just because they hold a different view on things. All right. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servant, stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person's consider one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Verse 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it's unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Last verse there, 21, or last word I'm reading. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. See, I believe one of those things Jesus might have had in mind is, is this. Because Paul felt strongly enough to dedicate a whole chapter to it. Not to cause others to fall. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us into discerning what is open-handed and closed-handed issues. Alright. We need guidance here. What are the majors of Christianity? Because that's what we need to focus on. Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about it in just a minute. When Jesus comes back is not a major in Christianity. 
I'm not getting any amens on that. And don't worry, Jesus said it himself, so we'll get, oh, I'm going to show you that in just a minute. That's not one of the majors we should be majoring on, or fighting over, churches splitting over it. What's up with that? Not a chance. The second of the three, <laughs> oh, bless you. The second of the three portions and, or portions of teaching I want to address quickly. Don't worry, these two are short. I told you that's going to be the longest part. Is verses three and four, and Jesus talks about forgiveness. And here, unlike so many places in his teaching, he does not say why we have to forgive. He doesn't say why. He just talks about how often, how much. All right. Now, now for you and me, praise God, we have the scripture. So we know we are forgive. We forgive, sorry, because we are forgiven. If you have no other reason to forgive, it's because you are forgiven. And if you don't forgive, you are not forgiven. By the way, some basic theology there. So forgiveness towards others is not a choice. The why, you got to do it. All right. You, can't, you don't get to hold on to that. But Jesus isn't talking about that here. He doesn't want to address the why in this section. He addresses the how often, how much. And it's here where we find the disciples saying that statement, increase our faith, Lord. When they're challenged, even if you have to forgive someone seven times a day. They're like, oh, this is a tough teaching. I mean... Jesus is raising people from the dead, and they're fine with it. They're, they're going along with that. No problems. They've got the faith for that kind of stuff, which is a bit telling about what's more difficult for us as disciples to do, right? We like the big things, the spiritual things. That's not big faith according to the disciples. Big faith is found in the little things. Big faith is found in, in when you have to forgive someone that did something against you and spoke against you and, and hurt you. That is where big faith is found. When we can still dig deep and say, Lord, because I am forgiven, I will forgive. Because I am forgiven, I will forgive. That's where big faith is found. That's where big faith is needed. See, personal hurts, man. It is something that is not so easy to overcome. And I think that's why so many people are suffering. So many Christians are suffering. If you had to ask, and now I'm not giving a, this is, this is anecdotal. And I, and I warn you for that, so don't take this to the bank. This is anecdotal. But when I speak to people who walk away from the church, time and time again I get one answer. I was hurt by the church. I'm carrying offense. I'm paraphrasing their words. I'm carrying offense against people. People very rarely leave a church because they don't like the worship leader. They get over that. People walk away because they cannot forgive. People walk away because they need an increase of faith in order to forgive. And we're in three verse, four verses so far in this chapter. <laughs> oh, Jesus is challenging us here. The, the fourth part, or the third one of the four that I want to talk about is, is this incredible story of Jesus speaking on doing your duty. Now, this is a challenging one because the servant it speaks of is much better translated, by the way, as slave. Um, but it's pretty much saying you should do your duty as a disciple without expecting accolades or praise, not deserving a position because... 
You know, I served coffee that one time in church, so obviously I'm in the upper ranks, you know. Or I, I preached a good message that one time, so now I've got authority. I gave a good word to someone. No, 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 no. We serve Christ with the gifts that He gave us as slaves unto the King. Slaves unto the King. And when it is all done, when we've given all that we should give, all that we have. Now listen, the point here is that we, everything we can possibly do is still less than God actually deserves. All right? Our best is still less than He deserves. But after we've done everything, we should like this story where Jesus said we should still come to the conclusion and say, God, even though I gave everything, I'm unworthy. And this is not because you're small. It's because He's so tremendously big. It's not because He doesn't love you. It's not because you're not special. It's because we're talking about the God of all things of creation here. We're talking about something so much bigger than we can even conceptualize. We're talking about something so much fearsome than we can never think or imagine. I mean, when the angels came down, people would fall on their faces in fear. How much more should we not fear the God of creation? Listen, God is not your home dog, all right? When the Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, it doesn't mean the respect of God. It means the fear of God. The grace of God is when we were enemies, He died for us. But our response to God should still recognize in everything we are, the incredible, awesome nature of this fearsome God. This God who can rip open the earth and swallow people if He wanted to. We'll talk about that some other time somewhere. I'm running out of time and there's a lot we need to get through. I want to quickly go to the second part of two parts, which is much shorter than the first part. Praise God for that. Verses... Um, so I didn't write there from verse 20 um, up until the end of this chapter. And the big idea is that the kingdom of God is already here, but there will be a future appearance of the Son of Man for which people will be unprepared. And in the second part, you know, Jesus makes a few things very, very clear. Number one, it is wrong to think that as the kingdom of God as a future event as it is already a present reality. All right, we can't just think of the future of God as a future event. Number two, there will be a future time when the Son of Man will be revealed in all His glory. Number three, no one can know when this will be. No one can know when this will be. All right, and then number four here is that it will be a time of judgment that will break in on normal life and many will be caught unprepared. Many will be caught unprepared. Let me just quickly explain something. This is so important. That we have the right view of what is the kingdom of God. Now you remember, I think in week one I said, don't worry, we are going to talk about what is define the kingdom of God. Because this is so important for our understanding. And in order to understand it, it is vitally important that we don't limit it to our modern understanding. And what I mean by that is that the kingdom of God should not be limited to a geographical location. As in, there it is. Jesus himself says, you can't point to it and say, there it is. So we should not limit the kingdom of God as we might today say the kingdom of South Africa is in the southern part of Africa. That's where the Boca reside. We, no, no, it doesn't work like that with the kingdom of God. 
We should not limit it to a geographical location um, or to the people who are under the kingship. Usually we define a king as in over those whom he rules. But when we talk about the kingdom of God in a theological sense, it is not limited to geographical location or to the people that are subject to that king. Now, this is where it gets important, because limiting the kingdom to such a narrow scope undermines God's absolute power over all things. It undermines God's power. So, while a definition of the kingdom might include what we find in Matthew 19, 14, the people, and what we find in Zechariah 14, 9, the geographic location, a better description would be a kingdom is the authority to rule and the sovereignty of the king. In other words, This kingdom is about God's authority to rule. We're talking about his kingship. Now, obviously, this was ushered in through the coming of Jesus in a much more tangible way. And we know that it is not limited in scope or capacity. We know that it will be fully consummated without any opposition whatsoever at Christ's second return. Now, there's scriptural references for all of this. You can go look on the notes. But the kingdom of God is so important for us to understand because it does represent the present. It represents the future. It represents where we are in terms of geographic location because everything is under the rule of God's authority to reign over all things. It represents us as the people, and it represents, obviously, the future we are looking forward to. But why this is so, so vitally important for us to understand is because many Christians are caught under this idea that we are at the mercy of the enemy. And that is theologically impossible because God cannot be the king and not the king. That's impossible. When Jesus came and he ushered in the kingdom of God, he said, it is now amongst you. We have to understand that what Jesus did is Jesus bound up the strong man and we are now plundering his riches. Jesus bound up Satan and Satan is now limited in its ability to stop the spread of the gospel. That has already happened. We, we need to get out of this framework where we as Christians think the devil and God is in this eternal struggle as if their power is matched. That is like me and my son wrestling and thinking he has a chance to beat me. Don't get me wrong. I love him very much, but he's not a good opponent for a wrestling match. All right? There is no eternal struggle here. There is no struggle here. God can wipe out Satan by flicking his fingers. If you want to talk about why he doesn't, well, you're not going to stop sinning. That was your choice. There's nothing to do with the devil. I think sometimes the devil gets a lot of blame that's not his. Sometimes I almost feel sorry for him. Almost. Oh, but the devil made me gossip. He had no hand in that. The devil made me do this. Do you know Jesus? Yes. Now you made you do that. The king is already on the throne, people. And as sons and daughters of the Most High, to have a weak view of his kingdom will shape how we view Scripture. You will put yourself in a place of of defeat because you'll think, oh, but the earth is the kingdom of Satan. Not a chance. Not a chance. Now listen, we can talk through all that theology. We don't have a time, uh, to time today anyway. And 
People say, oh, but why did Satan offer it to Jesus? He's the liar. Why do we trust his words of, on, just on the face of it? Do we not know him as the father of lies? Why do we trust anything that comes out of his mouth? We're living in the time where Jesus Christ has already defeated Satan. Death is already defeated. Death can borrow life, but it cannot destroy it. I'm going to move on. We must recognize our freedom here. But Jesus states in this passage, and, and we need to look at it just quickly. We're going to be done in five minutes. Don't worry. But we see that the Pharisees had this misunderstanding where, where they think that, that the kingdom of God is a future event and it's a future identifiable event rather than his current effective reign. And that's just wrong. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the future events and his return. And he, he mentions some specifics. These are important. It will be like lightning that lights up the sky. What does that mean? Everyone will see it. And it says, from one end to the other, everyone will know it. And he says this because the disciples were running. Well, he warned them, don't run after those who say, oh, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Like, okay, let me see. She's like, don't worry. You'll know when it comes. Don't stress about that. You'll know. All right? You'll know. We'll get back to that in a minute. And then he says, like Noah's flood, even though people were warned, they won't be ready for it. Like Lot, people were living their lives and they were still destroyed. And then we see clearly that earthly possessions once again pose a hindrance to spiritual salvation. Once again, there's a warning that earthly possessions, those who want to turn around and go get what they loved, run down from the roof and quickly go grab their, their flat screen TV. Um, it's a hindrance. It's a hindrance to our eternal salvation or spiritual salvation and then Jesus explains that while two people might be close relationally they have no guarantee of the same eternal destiny all right let's quickly quickly go through these it's important firstly Jesus makes clear that the kingdom is already among us we've gone through that so I don't have to spend more time on that and then Jesus goes on to explain that people will be unprepared for his second coming no matter what they will be warned. They will be unprepared. But an important part here is that we must recognize this interesting imagery Jesus uses, that two people laying together in the same bed, one will be taken and one will be left. Now, now listen, this verse is often, or these two verses often used to support the idea of the rapture, you know, that taken around and, and just a, a pile of clothes laying. I want to suggest, I want to suggest that it's not at all what Jesus had in mind when he taught this. Because what Jesus had in mind is that just because you know someone who knows Jesus doesn't mean you've got the same destination. When he comes back, spouses will lay in the bed together. One, because they knew Jesus, will be taken up into glory and the other will face eternal damnation. This is what Jesus was warning about. Proximity does not lead to salvation. Proximity doesn't save Knowing Christ and doing the will of the Father saves. That's what saves us. Let me finish up here. In this rich and beautiful passage, I had to skip over some things, but we're fine. We are so encouraged because we are assured of the kingdom of God, which is absolute. We are assured of this authority, authoritative rather, rule of God over all things. Now, now, I've said a lot today, but this is one of those things that you need to start carrying with you. Is that we are already a part of the triumph of Christ. Satan has already been defeated at the cross. Already defeated. 
You and I, as Christians, are plundering his wealth. If that doesn't excite you, I don't know what will. You and I are plundering those who are lost and stumbling around in the darkness because the strong man has been bound. He's been bound. Stop wasting all our time binding the strong man in our prayers and start plundering his riches because that is the kingdom we live in today. He's already been bound. Now that's important. And one of the other things, obviously, and I've spoken about this in the beginning as well, is that we need to start majoring on the majors. What I know for sure, by the way, is that Jesus will come back. Amen? Yeah. I know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. I have, I have no doubt in my heart and I have no clue when it is. Let's leave it at that. Paul thought they were in the end times and he wrote that they were in the end times. And I'll get to why I'm saying this today in just a moment. We read further in the New Testament that that some believe they would still be alive when Jesus came back 2,000 years ago. That would be impressive. I would love to look at what they eat if they could live that long. And we go on throughout history. We've had many claiming to know the exact time and place when Jesus comes back. I know my grandfather was kept out of school because Jesus is coming. And let me tell you, his mom was just as assured of that fact as what so many Christians are today. And I also want to assure you, she was dead wrong. Why I'm saying this, why I'm saying this, is because this is not the major for us as Christians. This is, and in fact, Jesus himself warned the disciples that don't run after it. When people say, oh, here it is, or, or here, Jesus is coming back here, don't run after that. He said, you'll know when it comes. What Jesus is saying is don't waste your time on the things that aren't supposed to be the majors for us as Christians to be keeping ourselves busy with. We just read, there's something we should be doing. We are servants of the Most High. We've got a job to do. We're not supposed to be running after this eschatological views. Nowhere in Scripture can I justify an obsession with eschatology. That means end time studies. What I can justify is plundering darkness. What I can justify is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ to every corner of this earth. I can justify it. Why? Because that was Jesus' exact command to us. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I have all authority. There is no authority like mine. So go out and make disciples of all people, teaching them to obey what I've taught you. That is what we should be doing, church. That is what we should be keeping ourselves busy with. We need to start majoring on the majors because the world doesn't need to know when Jesus comes back. The world needs to know that He is coming back even if we could tell them like Noah did before the flood was coming like Lot did because of their unrighteousness it doesn't mean they'll turn just because they know when it might happen we need to major on the majors we need to major on the majors we need to stop quarreling about things that doesn't matter come quarrel with me if you want to quarrel with someone. I love talking theology. But when we go out into the world, we are agents of reconciliation between God and man. That is what we should be doing. That is what we should be keeping ourselves busy with. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord, that 
that we know this morning that you have already received all authority in heaven and on earth. There is no authority like yours, Jesus. There is no threat to your kingship. There is no match for your glory. And I want to thank you for this incredible teaching that we find in, in chapter 17, Lord. And, and our desire, I know our desire is to serve you. I know, Lord, that we desire to, to bring you glory and honor. I, I know, Lord, that, that we want to be your disciples in every sense of the word. And this morning we recognize again that, that man, we should be majoring on majors. So, Lord, as your, as your little church here in Sabi this morning, Lord, we, we want to say sorry for those times that, that we were quarreling fruitless things. Lord, my prayer is that, that whenever it is you come back, that you will find us doing the things you told us to do. That you will find us at work in the field, plowing, sowing, watering. That you will find us doing what we've been instructed to do. Lord, we, this morning we want to repent of any times when, when we might have been stumbling blocks for others' journeys. Help us, Lord, not to, to place things in the way of those who want to follow you, but rather to help them, to restore them, to forgive, to, to confront, not for the purpose of, of confrontation, but to confront for the purpose of reconciliation so that people might be restored onto the path. Help us, Lord, to major on the majors. Help us, Lord, to be agents of reconciliation between a holy God and humanity. I want to thank you, Lord, that this morning, once again, we are tasked. We are tasked to do that which we've been called to do. We are tasked to go into this world and to, to spread the gospel, to disciple people, to lead them, to show them, to love them. Help us, Lord, do it well in Jesus' name. Amen.